Hey baby, I hear the blues are calling Tossed salads and scrambled eggs And maybe I seem a bit confused Yeah, maybe, but I got you pegged But I don't know what to do with those tossed salads and scrambled eggs All right, welcome to the Hot Stove Society Show on Cairo Radio Got a full house today We're excited to have everyone in for day after Thanksgiving Hot turkey Mashed potatoes. We instead of dressing, we have grilled uh, flaxseed toast and green beans. Is that right, Annie? We have green beans today with a little almonds and uh, some of the gravy gods sweet onion gravy. I've been wondering what to get a tattoo of on my personal body. Gravy God. I think Gravy God might be it. You know, there's Lars at least is going to get a medal made for me, a GG with a gold chain. You know, there's at least one person who's not going to like that. I know. There's somebody on our show that listens and says she wrote us a note saying. You're no God. Well, you're right. It's just, just a joke. Okay. Loretta is here in Pam's place today. My daughter uh, is going to work the production side of the show. And uh, I do believe that while we're doing this, we're expecting people to write a little question if they have anything that they want answered during that uh, Ask the Chef's question. And then for those of you who would love to come be part of something here in downtown Seattle, the Figgy Pudding market fundraiser for the food bank and for the senior center is happening on december the 2nd and pamela our producer uh-huh. is going to lead it oh, lead wow. this group uh one of the groups there's many groups that go caroling and she would like you to meet her at fourth on the december 2nd at four thirty and join up and you, they're going to practice i imagine there might be a libation or two they're going to practice and then go out and carol uh in the figgy pudding caroling competition and where are they meeting at sea town which oh, is cool. down there at the corner of western and yeah, virginia yeah. and so uh make sure you email her at pamela h at tom com, and you can uh, join her team that sounds like a lot of fun here's the thing she really needs the help the more people that join her the less she has to sing and the better it will <laughs> and sound the better it's all gonna be <laughs> no uh, i'm sorry pam pam's not feeling good today and so uh, i shouldn't be making fun of that's her. that's a very sweet thing to put by together. the way i'm tom douglas and chef. i'm terry rotiro the chef in the hat we are chefs here in seattle we're happy to be here uh and we are thrilled to have such a big and lively audience our hot stove partners here at the hotel under the beautiful hotel Andra are ready for the holidays. We hope you come join us for one of our radio show tapings. And you can get a seat at hotstovesociety.com. I will tell you, it's not always like this. Not only in the crowd size, but in what they're going to get for lunch today. That's right. We have a little later taping today, and they're getting a whole darn lunch. Well, they're getting beautiful leftover, which is what, what today is good about. There's too many for leftovers. This, this we weekend, to... this, this what's so great about this weekend. You're eating leftovers. It's great. Our very own chef here at the hot stove, Kelty Clark Mahoney. Uh, was contributing author to two-volume uh, book set, Food and World Culture. And we're going to have him on for a couple of segments to talk about it. It's a tome. There's two, uh, yeah, it's, it's huge. There's a lot to read there. Okay. And then also, remember, we're moving our taping days at the request of Cairo to Thursday mornings from Friday morning. So right. if you want a ticket and you think you have the day off, think about it on a Thursday. Um, Mike Salvatore is here from 58 Stars Travel. That's the guy you work with, right? When you That's do all correct. Your, your... I haven't seen him yet. Where is he? Is he here? Oh, he's coming. I'm oh, he's sure. coming. But uh, he, he he organizes all your travels. Is the is uh, actually the the president and of 58 Star Travels, which is the company that uh, takes me around the world. Lovely. With a group uh, of people, of course. With a group. And we're going to recap the highlights and bloopers and inspirations um, of your Thanksgiving leftovers. Our recommendations on Christmas gifts for the food-obsessed friends on your list. Of course, it must include Rub With Love. Yes. Don't you think? And a meat thermometer, for sure. And a meat thermometer. And, of course, we're going to play 
our food for thought, rub with love, tasty trivia challenge as our last segment. So my taste of the week. Go ahead. I normally, you know, I can be, I don't mean to be, but I can be a little bit negative. A bit. I go with just a bit. Just a bit. It's a big bit. I have opinions. Not everything is perfect. So I went to a restaurant the other night. And I had the special gnocchi, which was butternut squash gnocchi. Very seasonal, yeah. Yeah, and it was spinach. And so they made the gnocchi, which I thought was going to be butternut squash gnocchi, but it was just gnocchi with chunks of butternut squash in the sauce. Oh. And then over top of raw spinach. And I love this restaurant. I go there all the time. Is that the sauce was like eating honey. Like it was uh, so sweet. sweet and, and kind of gross. No vinegar, and, nothing? No, just butter and sweetness. And it was it was... Sad. Something you put on your pancake. Yeah, it was more like a honey syrup, on, and that shouldn't be in a savory environment. Agree. So don't do that. If you're at home making gnocchi with butternut squash. Well, just throw a big... Just do butter and sage. Yeah. Yeah. And just then put a little simple. vinegar in there. That will definitely... Sure, vinegar will help a change lot. Change it. Yeah, it will So that's it. not my taste of the week. <laughs> <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> that is your taste of the week not to do. Yeah, I get not it. Not to do. Yeah. Right. Well, for me, it's... Uh, yesterday, we had... For the first time, I never... I didn't cook anything for Thanksgiving. First time in probably 30 years. I uh, went to some friends with just six of us, and they bought the, uh, the whole package from the university club. Shout out to uh, Jacob Hewlett, the uh, chef over there. Great job. They cooked the turkey. We cooked the turkey. They cooked the turkey at home. And, uh, not, they cooked no, it or warmed it? No, no, they cooked it. Oh, they just bought the sides from the U-Club. They bought the sides and the turkey, but the turkey wasn't cooked. You must hang Stan, out with bankers or Stan something. Stan and Ingrid, you know, yeah. that's, that's who yeah. I was at, Savage, uh, their house. And uh, Stan cooked the turkey. Perfectly cooked, moist, beautiful, nothing inside the turkey. I was like, oh, I hope it's not going to get... No, it was perfect. So big shout out to the instruction. It was a three-page instruction that came with the, mm-hmm. all the goodies. Perfect instruction, you know, halfway through. And Stan, who's, Stan is, a, is, is a banker, he's not a, a chef. And he followed the instruction to the letter and they, everything came out perfect. Nice. And it's very rare. The only thing that was a little boo-boo was the gravy was... You know, it needed another quart of chicken stock in about thick. two cup of it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, there was tons of gravy, uh-huh. and thank God she had a little chicken stock in her cupboard. Yeah. So, so you, you know, fixed that up for her. Fixed that up very quickly. Nice job. And we had green beans. We had mashed potato. We had it was delicious. I just love this holiday of Thanksgiving, or you know, the just the fact of getting together and having this nice little meal and. I brought some great wine, and we had a fantastic evening. It was nice. My daughter, who's our producer today, made a beautiful pumpkin pie, very chiffon-esque. Thank you. You know, you were, um, you you were a, a timid baker. You had a lot to say about it while I was cooking it. You were a timid baker when you first started baking maybe 15 years ago, 20 years ago, but now you are right there in the kitchen. She's taking after mom. And she still does this thing that makes me a little twisted. You know, I bet all the people in the audience know that I have cookbooks. You do? Uh, yeah. Yeah, and I actually have a bakery cookbook that has two different pumpkin pies in it. Do you think my daughter would not walk around the kitchen with her iPhone in her face reading somebody else's pumpkin pie recipe to accomplish the feat? How many times do you think she had yours? Uh, Not very many. I never make it. Doesn't hurt my feelings or, or anything like that. All right, the aftermath of Thanksgiving. What's the most de- delicious uh, dish that you had on Thanksgiving? And what do you do with the leftovers on Cairo? It's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Breakfast can wait. You really put it on me. You shut it down last night. Come on to my house, to my house, I'm gonna give you candy. Come on to my house, to my house, I'm All right, we're back in the kitchen. It's the hot stove kitchen here at the Hotel Andra. 
And what is the most delicious dish that you had on Thanksgiving? Uh, any creative leftover ideas and any mistakes? So I'm going to start with Loretta. You had one mistake that I saw, which you went back and fixed, which I thought was at good your on, insistence. And good on you. <laughs> but what happened? So I tried a new pie crust recipe to me this year, and I was blind baking it, and the whole article that I was reading about how to make this pie crust was don't overbake your blind bake crust. Um, that like that's which the number, I totally disagree that's with. That's the yeah, number me one too. mistake. Yada yada. And so I pulled it out, and it was not super baked. Um, and my lovely father. So what happened? Made you me pulled the rice in. out. You pulled the parchment with. Yeah, the, I pulled the, the pie weights out, and then my crust slumped because the weight wasn't mm-hmm. holding up the sides anymore, and it wasn't cooked enough. So I followed the instructions from the internet. Maybe I should have been using the Dahlia Bakery. A well-tested Dahlia Bakery. <laughs> but yeah, it did didn't uh, hold up as well, so I ended up putting it back in the oven for. So, but a bit. we had already pulled. You had already pulled the pie weights out, so you just had to put them the parchment back, back in, in yeah. and put it in. And then I held it while you kind of lifted up the sides because yeah. it was that rare. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so, so you, I just kind of lifted up the sides. Slumped. We put oh, the pie weights yeah. back in. It was in. that yeah. rare. Yeah. Yeah. So Terry, you, I told her that you got to you can't overcook a blind baked crust for a pumpkin pie because when you put the custard in the pumpkin, it's going to get wet. Yeah. So she didn't believe me. But I think in the future, she will cook them a little bit longer than yeah. she did. Yeah. I will but, say, I did really like the crust method outside of under baking it. I'd never done it before where you just pulse together your ingredients and then you dump them all into a tea towel. And then you pull up the sides of the tea towel and just twist so that it forms, the dough forms a ball and you don't work the dough at all. So... It does, the dough doesn't get overworked, and right. then you just put, pop it in the That's fridge a good for half way an to hour. I'd never seen it before, and it worked really well. So, but yeah, I think I think under baking is one of the biggest drama of most people in baking. They're always afraid to overbake, and it's you. Yeah. It's really, 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 really hard to burn a pie crust. It's very especially hard, especially one that's going to have a custard, a custard in it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's it's almost impossible. So. But it's much easier to underbake. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Sean, our technical producer, what is what was your Thanksgiving uh, like, and well, wh- what was your favorite, or what happened? Well, we um, I did a small group, so no full size turkey this year. You it did just, it? Um, yeah. Well, I I went to a friend's house. Oh, okay. It was just two of us, so it was pretty small scale. Uh, but I I got steak because you know if nothing yeah. else, it's a good old standard. But I think I overcooked it, which uh, no way. Unfortunately, I, do you yeah. have a meat thermometer? <sighs> That's the thing. I oh didn't my have a meat oh thermometer! My goodness, goodness. Uh, <laughs> you're going to so, get scolded by the host here on the show. We're going to plant one in your back. <laughs> it was still delicious. Um, I got a really nice cut of meat. So uh, if you're feeling like you might overcook something, just Put a little extra money in the quality of the meat, and yes. that might carry. And a little thermometer. So, what was the meat you cooked? What was the type of meat? Prime rib. And yeah, did so you do a whole roast? No, just so a steak. Just I a probably steak. should have, and it probably wouldn't would not have okay. been overdone. But all right. Yeah. And your favorite side that you had with it? Uh, just a side of rice that was kind of nice and uh, nice and uh, fluffy. Yeah, perfectly cooked, and it just soaked up all the juice from uh-huh. the, from the steak. So nice. Yeah, it was nice and thick. Okay, really Chef, uh, you had the fancy uh, banker-led University Club Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah. And you already told us that Stan cooked the perfect turkey. Yeah, what was I, your favorite I, side? Well, no, I was going to say my favorite part of the meal was the turkey. And the turkey had nothing in it. It was just 
a 12 pound turkey put in the oven just as is and um it was perfectly baked was I it mean, brined or anything no it was just as is and and Stan did a great job. He put it in the oven and same temperature the whole time. And uh-huh. it came out beautiful, crispy crust, just like you want it. And the meat was really delicious. It was a, it was a good turkey. Obviously, it wasn't... Uh, anyway, it was a good turkey and it was moist. The breast of meat was really nice. And, and I sliced the whole turkey and beautiful. Lovely. And I, I think it's um, something that often you see that's not the right part of the meal. I mean, you know, it's a... I've been to Thanksgiving where I've seen the turkey being quite not so good. It's a vehicle for the sides, not Correct. the... Yeah. Yeah. And then for the sides, I think the green beans were fantastic because it was raw, chopped garlic, put into the green beans with a little bit of butter. You know, they cook the, the garlic into the butter uh-huh. and salt and pepper and put that all over the green beans, keep it in the, in the, in the foil, and then it will get warmed up in the oven for about 15 minutes at 350, covered, and it was delicious. And it's, again, those green beans were delicious, which is also another part I have a pet peeve with that, is often the green beans are tree trunks, undercooked, not chewable. These were tender, beautiful, good flavor. And then that garlic on top of it was, of course, delicious. So I think those were the two highlights of the, you know, everything else was also delicious. There was a cranberry sauce, which was a bit too simple for me. I would have loved to have you know, some vinegar, some, a little bit more profile to it, but that's all. That's, that's well, I, you'll be happy to know I made a couple of rookie mistakes this Thanksgiving. I've been cooking Thanksgiving as long as you've been alive, for sure, and, and before that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I made a couple of rookie mistakes. Do One ten. is I didn't check to see if the, my oven temperature was where I had it set. So oh. I, I haven't checked my oven in a while to see what if 325 is actually 325. So I think it's running 25 to 50 degrees slow. Ooh. And so when I looked at my turkey after two hours, I only had an hour left to finish it. It was like, whoa, I got a problem here. This baby's, this baby's running red. And I got to hurry this thing up. So popped it up to 400. Which was 350. Well, yeah, but it also, I had to cook it all the way till when I served it. So when I did cut it, it just, the juices just came exploding out because I didn't have the oh, yeah, yeah. proper resting time. So that's a rookie mistake. Always check your oven temp before a big holiday and make sure that... It's working at the temperature you think it's working. Correct. Another one, I made two rookie mistakes on one dish after this. Did they eat it? They did. Okay. Did they it like part it? It was part of the five-second rule. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I put all my potatoes into the mixer right. to mash them for mashed sure. potatoes. I turned on the mixer, and it went on high. Oh. <laughs> did you Potato decor- explosion. So the kitchen <laughs> explosion out of the, out of the mixture. And out of the bowl, which was unnecessary because I have that little kind of semi-round lid that yeah. holds everything yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You didn't put that? No. Oh, I didn't. It's like, why no, would you put why? that? I thought I was going on low and the thing just kicked in the high. So, Hot my potatoes second mistake, Yeah, my second mistake. Well, I did have a catcher in the rye who uh, caught it just before it hit the ground and got it right back into the bowl. Hot potato. The second rookie mistake I made on that dish was... I had warmed up the cream and the butter and uh-huh. stuff to, to put into my mashed potatoes. And I put it over there by the mixer. Then I turned the mixer on and I got all flustered because my potato just popped out of the mixer. And then I forgot that the handle was over the flame on the cream and the butter. And I reached for the pan and lifted the pan to pour out, you know, the juice into the mixing potatoes. And so then he you, dropped you, that pan and then, then I dropped the, dropped the pan and butter the explosion. <laughs> <laughs> So now, let me was, guess. The butter and the cream mixed, but not the Yeah, pan? it mixed into my spice rack. It mixed <laughs> into my toaster. It mixed into a lot of things. 
into the blender. Yeah. So you repainting the kitchen today? <laughs> <laughs> a nice cream color. Yeah, I never forget the, the time I did and, that. Uh, uh, hand in the ice bucket. I did that boo boo once with a saffron sauce. I mean, saffron bright yellow into the Vitamix blender. Turn it on, and same thing. It was on high. I didn't see it. It was on high, so I just turned it on. It just went, and then all the wall became splattered yellow, bright yeah. yellow. And you can't get it out. Oh man, it's like it stains right away. Yeah. No, it's nice. You see your 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 boo boo for weeks to go. <laughs> all right, Mike Salvatore is going to join us. Uh, he's uh, the owner of Fifty Eight Stars Travel, which is the, the company that you work with to take these trips. That's right. At, uh, and you're going to Ireland in the in the spring, right? Ireland, and then uh, Portugal in September. Right, let's check in on that when we come back on the Hot Stove Society Show, ninety-seven three FM. Satan gave me a taco and it made me really sick. The chicken was all raw and the grease was mighty thick. The rice was all rancid and the beans were so hard. I was getting kind of dizzy, eating all the lard. There was aphids on the lettuce and I ate every one. And after I was... All right, here we are in the Hot Stove Society kitchen on Cairo. I'm Chef Tom Douglas. And I'm Terry Rotiro, the chef in the hat. Our guest producer today is Loretta Douglas. And Sean, of course, as typical as on technical values of the show, with Sean Dottori doing the editing back in the studio. So, Chef Chef Terry, you are once again going to travel the world. And you go with this company called 58 Stars Travel. Right. Is that right? That's right. And I think I I drove by it up in Bothell or something. Yes. Kenmore on the way to Bothell. Yeah, there you go. So. Mike Salvador is here, and he's going to tell us, and you're going to tell us uh, what your plans are. So our next trip that I have planned, or that we have planned, not I have, we have planned, <laughs> is uh, Ireland. And uh, we actually have a few seats left. It's booking very quickly, so we only have a couple of seats left. Mike, do tell us what's going on in Ireland. Yeah. So this is an exciting trip that we, got, we have planned. Uh, we were able to, so all of the trips that we create are real custom-crafted experiences Food experiences, interesting um, chef experiences, history sites. In Ireland, we'll see all the sites. We'll see Dublin. We'll see the Cliffs of Moher. We'll go to Killarney. Um, but we're also doing some really interesting experiences along with that. We will go seaweed foraging um, out near the coast. You'll actually go and... and um, and forage for the seaweed, and then after that will be created into special dishes. Yeah, that you will be actually will have lunch. to eat it. You'll have to eat it. <laughs> but um, uh, mushroom foraging, we'll be doing um, a, Guinness, a special Guinness tour. There's a lot of Guinness tours out there, but we'll be going behind the scenes with Guinness. We'll be doing some distillery tours. So really beautiful experience. It's the end of April, which is actually a really wonderful time to be in Ireland. Um, it's not too busy, but it's right after St. Patrick's Day, and so it's kind of in that middle season. So it's cool, but it's starting to get warmer, and um, it's really a wonderful experience. Yeah, we have four spots left out of 14. We get, we're looking for 14 people to join us on these trips. Uh, we have 10 already in, and so look, four more that we're looking for for that. Uh, yeah. And then... In September, we're going to Portugal. Yeah, Portugal. That I'm looking forward to. This uh-huh. is like the new hotspot for most uh, Americans to travel around the world. Uh, Portugal is like super hot. I've been wanting to go to Portugal for 20 years. And finally, we put this trip together. And 
that's also a trip I'm looking forward to. Yeah, Portugal is one of those places that if you asked about it eight or nine years ago, not many people were going there. In the last few years, it really has become one of the hot spots of Europe. It's um, almost too much so, right? Almost too much so yeah. to a point, which is why we built this trip at the end of September. So it's off of the summer season. July and August are tougher times to be in Portugal. The end of September, it's still beautiful weather. Um, but that trip, again, what, what we try to do with these trips is really create unique experiences that Chef Terry could experience, but everyone can experience with him. And so uh, we'll be doing some w wonderful wine experiences in the Douro Valley and Porto. Uh, we'll be seeing some incredible sites in Sintra and Casse and uh, Lisbon, staying at really interesting boutique hotels and so not big hotels. We stay at places that are um, a little bit more intimate so that people can really get to know each other. Wonderful chef experience, uh, uh, dinner experiences, uh, Michelin star experiences, as well as local experiences. Portugal is one of those places that if it's not on your list, it should be. And if it's on your list, make sure you go at a time where it's not completely over-touristed. Yeah. And so early, kind of late spring or um, early fall, mid-fall is just such a perfect time uh -huh. to be there. There's a good show on, I'm not sure on what, but we started watching it the other night and I fell asleep on Porto. Yeah. There's, a, there's an hour documentary yeah. or two-hour movie or something on Porto. No, I mean, it's a gorgeous... On the Dura I mean, Valley there. Gorgeous cities to visit, and it's a beautiful country. And like, like Mike said, 20 years ago, it was like Mexico 100 years ago. You know, it was, it was like, it's the only country in Europe probably pretty much left that's like, you still can go to a village and, you know, feel like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm still, you know, back 50 years. Not, right. You know, not up to every European city. So, and Lisbon is a beautiful city, gorgeous city. I mean, you know, it's, it's funny, you travel the world looking for the best food, and I look for the best golf courses. Yeah. Because <laughs> no. I'm going to Ireland in the spring, too, yeah, yeah. in May. But I'm leaving from a golf club in Scotland by helicopter over the Irish Sea with our golf clubs, dropping into Dublin in Royal County Down, the uh -huh. number one rated course in the world, <coughs> playing golf, and then we're helicoptering back to Scotland that same day. Great. Yeah. So, Great. A little different experience, right? You can do anything you want no, to do. No, no, absolutely. Yeah. But most importantly, I heard the Irish were the nicest people in the world. So <laughs> I want to go see that beautiful spirit because yeah. I feel like I'm a little bit Irish on the inside just by spirit. And the thing about traveling with us and Terry is that these are really fun trips where lots of laughs, lots of time to just sit and chat and have fun together. Yeah. Um, and we become friends with the people. I mean, 14 people is such a small group. We become friends, you know, and it's really nice. After 10 days, you're like, okay, cool. When are we doing the next one? <laughs> exactly. And you, Kathy goes with it. Kathy's in the sure. audience today. Kathy goes with you and yeah. keeps you in line. That's right. <laughs> She keeps uh, everything floating. <laughs> when I was last in Ireland, I, you, I was driving around, and uh, you know it's just amazing to look up in the hills. Ireland, Scotland, a lot of the UK, where you see all the animals in green grass. Right. And, you know, I have a farm over in Prosser, Washington, where the animals are in Dry mud, grass. mud pits. <laughs> and it's just such a difference in feeling like uh, how you care for the creature and, you know, what, you, what you're going to get back in cream and butter and stuff like that, right. the difference. I mean, I don't know. Maybe they have factory farms over there, too, but I have not seen them. I mean, Ireland really is the Emerald Island. It is green all the time. And as you, as you said, the, the animals being able to go out into those green pastures, it's, it's a totally different 
um, experience than you experience in a lot of other places. Where, um, and I think what what we're tr- what we try to do is just make sure that it's a all encompassing trip. So it's not food, food, food. It's food and history and culture, correct? And sites and Which architecture is, and you know. Yeah, really I think that's what guys. makes those trips so valuable and so great. Is it's an experience. It's not just a trip. And you're not just going to a restaurant. You're not eating 24-7. You're, we're encompassing everything. And it's really cool to have a very de- nice in-depth with a guide that's going to give you beautiful in-depth culture and history. And I mean, I think it's, you come up with such a beautiful memory. I think it's, it's good. It's yeah, good. And, the, and the guides that we work with are incredibly knowledgeable. Um, they work with us over and over again, so we've gotten to know them over the years. Um, we know how, uh, we know what to do to bring people into the experience, uh, make them feel more at home with the experience, and um, it's, it's just a lot of fun. So yes, uh, Ireland at the end of April, Portugal at the end of September, and um, actually, our Portugal trip will actually go on sale next week, mm-hmm. and uh, that, really excited for that because um, we think that one will go pretty pretty fast. Now, if you can't get make this trip, but you're going to tell somebody you've been there many times, I'm assuming I've been to Dublin a few times, and there's a lot to miss in Dublin. I mean, that things that you don't want to do because it's a, to me, it's a little bit like the French Quarter in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. It's just a big frat scene yeah. uh, on parts of Dublin. So, how do you tell people, or what do you tell people to do to kind of avoid that? Yeah, I mean, I, there's a couple of things to do on that. First of all, you really want to. A lot of people will go online and they'll see something that's really interesting, and then they'll just say, "I want to go there." Well, the right. problem is. Millions of people are doing the same thing. And so if you work with uh, an agency, and some people have never worked with a travel agency, and some people think, oh, they're of the past. Well, it's the thing that's interesting about working with a travel agency is that we know where to send you, and we know to, how to keep you away from those and tourists, when. and when to send you, yeah. and keep you away from those touristy spots. That's the spots thing that I'm and, talking about, is stay away from some of these. They're overwhelmed with kids. Yeah. 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 Overwhelmed with kids and overwhelmed with people uh-huh. in many cases, especially Dublin. Dublin is one of those cities where it can get completely overrun yeah. and um, you just feel out of sorts. And your one can't miss thing. For me, it was the Trinity Library. I just thought that was an amazing Trinity Lab- Library is amazing. I'm yeah. a big fan of, the, of nature. So the Cliffs of Moher is just one of those things that, or the Ring of Kerry, uh-huh. I just, I think they're, they're beautiful. Really and beautiful places. by the way. Uh, Ireland is known not necessarily for their food, but it's changing drastically over the last 10, 15 years. You know, a lot of the new generation of chefs are bringing out all the, the new Irish food and you know, really promoting their, their culture and their food. And, and they're celebrating what's local. Exactly. That's what took yeah. over all the food around the world. People right. recognize what they had in their backyard. Right. Yeah. And and going back to that, and, and if you're to that. if you're interested, you can send us an email at the chef in the hat at fifty eight stars travel dot com, or you can reach out to Terry on his website. And either way, um, we'll give you more information about the trips. Perfect. Our our chefy recommendations. If you want to give this trip of, to Ireland as a Christmas present, you are more than welcome to. Yeah. If not, we have some recommendations for holiday gifts when we come back on Cairo. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM.
And we're back in the kitchen on the Hot Stove Society Radio Show channel. You know, you can podcast us, too. I don't know if you realize that, Chef, but uh, we're on a podcast. Oh, yes, we are. We yeah. are live on YouTube. Right now, we're live on YouTube. Yeah. On Thursday mornings when we tape from 9 to 11 normally. Correct. Today's a little bit different after Thanksgiving. You go know to, what? Go to TomDouglas.com. You forget to say that. If people uh, don't uh, give your trip to Ireland or to Portugal for a Christmas present, uh, there's some things that maybe they could do. Now, now you, you laugh, but I bought at an auction a trip to Tuscany for two to stay for a week in somebody's private condo, and I just gave it away as a Christmas present. You are the kindest man ever. Not really. I would I never could, give a trip really, anywhere I, to anybody. <laughs> I would take it myself. Even with no legs, I would still go there. <laughs> gave it away sounds a little laissez-faire. You I would gave give, it to your very lovely sister. I did, so. who was the executive director of the... Emergency Food Network in uh, Tacoma. Okay, okay, fine. And fine, she, you win. She's oh. a, a saint in wolf's clothing. Michelle. Yeah, Michelle. Yeah. Ma Michelle. Ta Michelle. Yeah. Michelle Yabel. You know, it turns out she's my goddaughter. My, my mom died in August, and I just got a package with all the old photos. My sister kind of put them aside for each of the sips, and so mine came. And in the package, there's a picture of me and my youngest sister, Michelle, saying... Happy at Godfather christen- at, her, at, her at her christening. christening. Yeah, I was like, with you as her godfather. With, yeah, I never knew you I was are? her godfather. Yeah. You didn't know. I didn't know. So I had to make up for all these years of being lax. There that's, you go. That's cool. All right, some uh, Christmassy cookware or things for the kitchen. I'm going to start off. Is it okay? Go ahead. You know, we have a wonderful sponsor here at the Hot Stove, the KitchenAid Company. They do our pans, our ovens, our fridges, uh, you name it. We use a lot of KitchenAid product. And I just bought on Amazon... A KitchenAid immersion blender, like I just used for the gravy here today. I was going to say, we need one to show them. No, I have a million of them over there. But the one I bought on Amazon is the first one that I've seen that is wireless. So you you saw me having to move around to kind of accommodate the length of the cord. Yeah. You don't have to do that anymore. It's wireless, and you can take it anywhere in the kitchen, and it's awesome. So I'm going to give that this year to everyone but my daughter, because she's sitting here, and I don't want her to know what I got her. Yeah, of course. Uh, so let's talk about what to use it for in most common usage because, you know, tools like this, many people look at them in the store and they go, well, that's great, but like, what am I going to use that for? Right. So, I mean, the hand blender, the thing about the hand blender that's so cool, first of all, it's handy. It's a hand blender. It's very easy to use. You just need a deep pot and you can puree and blend anything you want. When you're making soups, anything that has Vinaigrette. liquid and solids... You just blend the heck out of it, yeah. and you get this beautiful silky soup ready for you and pumpkin or whatever you're making this time of year, and it's a very useful tool that way. I, and it I definitely totally beats uh, uh, the ex- If you don't have that machine, the next step is so much more work and so cumbersome. Yeah, you got to use a Vitamix or, right. or something, a food processor. Correct. Here's the thing I don't get, though. It struck me when I was using this new KitchenAid wireless immersion blender. Like, I'm a Milwaukee guy. Like, I, you know, I have a shop because of the farm, sure, because sure. of my house. I like to build things. If Milwaukee makes it in you know, an M18 battery size tool, I buy it. So why hasn't somebody come up with all of our kitchen? You know, they've got wires everywhere, the toaster. Sure, the, sure, sure. All you need is a rechargeable battery for all Coffee that. maker. Coffee maker. Put it anywhere. Million-dollar million idea right there. Let's Put it anywhere. It. I could yeah, bring a coffee not? maker into the bedroom easily. <laughs> and it's, um, you know, just saying. There's an opportunity there. Now there is. All right, what, what about you? A foodie um, thing? I'm going to go back to my, once again, Sean showed us 
A meat thermometer, it's a simple tool. 15 bucks. At, mo- at most. And then just buy it and use it. Don't guess what temperature your meat is at, your steak, your pork chop, your chicken, your roast. Don't guess. And by the way, your finger, that's not yeah, a These gauge. knuckleheads that open their hand and press on, oh, by the thumb is medium well, by the little finger is well done. It's, like, it's nonsense. <laughs> it's a nice picture and makes for a great TV show, but it sucks as real life. Yeah. Because it's not real. I mean, you can't tell me that you're going to be able to judge. You push here and then you push on your steak. Oh, yeah, it's the same. Yeah. Good job. So it's not just any meat thermometer, right? You want a big, a big face so that you can take, tell temperature quickly, a digi- Correct. digital, Correct. but with a big face for somebody like me who needs glasses. Correct. So you don't leave your oven door open for a half hour. Right. What is that big red one that we were using last week? Yeah, so you want something like that. And then uh, I like when you can pull the poker out yeah. and it turns it on. Correct. You don't have to do two things, trying to turn it on, turn it off. You just pull a little poker stick out and it, the thing At is At home I have a small round one with a screen that lights up and it's easy to read. You press the button, it comes on. You poke, you watch. In less than three seconds you get the temperature. Yeah. You pull out and you know where you're at. And it's very useful for things like chicken, pork roast, things that will dry out if you overcook it. You know, the, most of the regulation tells you chicken 165. Well, I pull mine at 160 or just slightly below that. And then I let it rest. And it reached 165, no problem. The health department just had a heart attack, chef. <laughs> you know what? We're going to have to survive. Collective, collective heart, ha- heart attack. We're going to have to survive that heart attack. We'll give them CPO. All right. My next one is a, a book that's been out for a little bit, but not all that long. It's called Walk. W-O-K. The Walk. The Walk. By Kenji Lopez-Alt. Definitely. It's, a, it's just a study of the tool and how to use it. And I think that a walk is sometimes intimidating to people because the metal is so thin that you can't, you don't feel like you can control it like you do a thick bottom pan or... But there's, there's reasons for all of that. Mm-hmm. And so he just does a little history of it and then great recipes on how to be successful with that tool. Right. And so what's it, a 30 or $40 book is my guess. And I just think it's a really fun exploration in the kitchen. I, I mean, I, I, I have it and I think it's a great book. So, I, yes, you get my vote on that. All right. Your next one. Um, I'm going to do the uh, 12-inch saute pan. And the saute pan that is... Um, aluminum, I mean, a stainless steel bottom. The whole pan is stainless steel, easy to wash. You can bring it to heat just like a cast iron, super, super hot, and you can sear really, really well in those pans. But most importantly, that pan will follow you to death, meaning that you will, uh, the pan will still outlive you yeah. because there is no way to destroy those pans. You cannot destroy them. I mean, I guess you could work at it, but uh, I think you will figure it out. You need a steel pad, and you need those pans when they're done, and they're super, they look like they're totally burned. You put them in the sink. You put cold water on it. You just use your steel pad. It's clean in an instant. To me, that's one of the best pans. And we use them in the restaurant business. Everybody uses them in the restaurant. For that reason, is it's easy to clean. It keeps the heat, which is very important. You know, many, many homes still go to have those flimsy saute pan where Terrible. you put them on the fire. So first of all, you can never get them hot enough because they would melt in front of you if you did. And they also lose the heat right away. So when you're trying to do like something as simple as sauteed mushroom, you know, don't overcrowd your pan. Just put your sliced mushroom in your pan. And then you need a pan that's really hot because if it's not, 
All that water is going to come out and look like a mushroom soup in your pan. So a good, heavy stainless steel. 12-inch, because everyone's got a 10-inch, but a lot of people don't have the big pan. Get, get the 12-inch, because you can always cook on one side of the pan, but you can't yeah. make the pan bigger. My last one is a fad that we started years ago on this radio show. We, we were the authors of this fad, which is a crispy chili crisp. Oh. And so my suggestion is you go to the grocery store. They've got one for five bucks called Logan Ma, mm-hmm. chili crisp, spicy yep. chili crisp. And it's uh, called Old Godmother is basically. And then you've got uh, the Kari Kari, which is a locally made chili crisp. Right. And you just give them both. Right? And yep. uh, let people decide for I themselves. Would, the Kari Kari is 15 the, bucks. The Momofuku one. I just you like the Momofuku one? It's delicious. It's spicier than either of the other two. So yeah. I feel like if so you maybe want a trio. Three pack, yeah. A little three pack of chili crisp. Make somebody's year. Yeah. No, that's and delicious true. stuff. You can be right on trend. Add it on anything and you'll still be happy. When we come back, Kelty uh, Mahoney is going to be with us and talk about his food and world culture books on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show. Stay with us. I only eat good sea salt. White sugar don't touch my lips. And my friends is always begging me to take them on macrobiotic trips. I'll have some clam chowder followed by beef steak on rye pumpkin pie with cream and coffee i want a green salad on the side don't forget the french fried pizza pie garlic and anchovy i keep running up calories as fast as i keep okay here we go we're back in the hot stove society kitchens Downtown Seattle. Our audience is chowing down on green beans and cranberry sauce, roasted turkey with sweet onion gravy, Yukon gold mashed potatoes. That cranberry sauce is delicious. You like the cranberry sauce? Oh, good. very good. I think that's it. Why don't you guys have wine? A How can you eat turkey dinner without a glass of wine? A little glass of, of Beaujolais would be kind delicious. Of cheap, what kind of cheap place is this? <laughs> okay, Kelty. Yes, Clark Mahoney is at the mic. He's at the guest mic here. Kelty yes, is one of, the, one of the chefs here in the Hot Stove Society kitchens. We're thankful to have him. He's, uh, he brings a world-renowned, um, probably renowned is the wrong word, but a world view of food. And so much so that you've actually uh, co-written a book with Linda S. Watts yes. and Kelty Clark Mahoney. Uh, the book is called Food and World Culture, Issues, Impacts, and Ingredients. And it's two volumes. It's a tome. It's huge. Yeah, yeah. It and is so, two maybe. It is two Moby Dicks long. Or is I'm it really Moby Dice? That's how I'm pluralizing. Is Ahab in here? Is Captain Ahab? The, um, no, but there is a chapter on whale. I okay, was, good. I did All not right. plagiarize it from Melville, though. They checked. Tell us about you, how you got into this business, and uh, your fascination with it, because you've been yeah. you've been all over the place. Yeah, I um, you know, just kind of lucked into it. Grew up here, Seattle, Washington, born and raised uh, up there in the Wedgwood neighborhood, where I'm assuming your stove comes from. Yeah, the, um, <laughs> exactly. What? No, the only thing that comes from that neighborhood is a Wedgwood broiler. Yes, yes. yes. Which that is, uh, you know, did it the old-fashioned way. I started washing dishes there in high school. Oh, did you? Yep. Good oh. friend of mine, uh, Matt Hawes. His mother, Susan, was uh, working the front up there and said they needed help in the kitchen. And so I went on in there and started my journey into restaurants. That would uh-huh. be about 2002-ish. So, you know, when you were very well established at that point. I was yeah, my thank you for that. Kelsey. The, uh, um, awesome. Yeah, I mean, yeah, everybody's uh, asking why he's not retired already. Yeah. 
Well, it is uh, it is fun though. So yeah, so I worked there. You know, did the worked my way up to being a line cook up there and doing all that. Uh, at a certain point, went off and did some corporate food services and food services at some schools. And uh, around then, the company at schools was, like a like a public school system. Uh, no, like at colleges. I was working oh, for okay. a Bon Appetit management company. Oh, sure, you know, yeah. Food services. Seattle so not University, in a frat house or something. Because you know a lot of those no, frat no, houses, no, they have their own chefs. They do. Yeah. I almost got one of those jobs yeah. once. That would have yeah. been pretty fun. But uh, my girlfriend at the time was not excited to have me working at a sorority house for a uh-huh. day. <laughs> She's very smart. There girlfriend. was some resistance there. Yeah, okay. yeah. I ended up making smarter life choices. All yeah. right. Yeah. So yeah. now you've got through the. Bon Appetit program, which is a catering division of yeah, Compass. Yeah, and then I was very lucky. They uh, sent me to school. They helped pay for a bunch of my culinary schooling just up here at the Seattle Culinary Academy, which is a tremendous organization, has been for a long time. Absolutely, yeah. Really hoping they get to keep continuing. I know there was that bit of a scare that they might not be staying open a while ago, but luckily it looks like they're holding in, and it was a great opportunity there. And, uh, yeah, I kind of always was a bit of a history nerd growing up. You know, it kind of runs in my family. And then one of the chefs there, Greg Atkinson, who was teaching there at the time, he's a big history nerd, too. Of course. Loves his food history so mm-hmm. much. Was chef at uh, Canlis for a little while. Yeah, exactly. Yep. yep. And, Contributor um, to the Seattle Time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And Good so, writer. Uh, yeah, he became a bit of a mentor for me there, and we kind of became friends. And uh, so he really helped kind of light the fire of getting me really interested to relating with food through history. Just became a really helpful sort of tool for using to relate to food for me after uh-huh. that. And then uh, from there, you know, traveled around, went and studied in Spain a little bit, did a little bit of Costa Rica and Nicaragua to warm up for a little bit before I came on home. And, uh, yeah, I taught at uh, Fair Start for about four years, which is actually where this book started. Uh, Linda Watts there, my co-author, who is a professor up at the University of Washington in their North Campus. Um, she was just a regular volunteer there every weekend and also big into history. And so we would just hang out and talk. And I sort of shifted positions in the organization, so I wasn't in that kitchen anymore. And so kind of started writing this book to have an excuse to hang out on the weekends and keep drinking coffee together and talking about history. Uh-huh. And uh, so yeah, it was great. I was really lucky to have her guidance on this. Being a professor, she has lots of experience. She actually... Uh, Tremendous career as we were starting this. She said, I'm glad to have you helping me on this. I've only written one encyclopedia before myself. <laughs> and I was like, oh, good, good. I'm glad yeah. I'm maybe going to help. The, um, so, yeah, it was a bit, been a tremendous experience. Um, yeah, started working about the first year we were working on it. A lot of great cooperation from all these other colleges and everything. I was getting to handle all of these amazing first materials and, uh, you know, original sources, and then the lockdowns came, and we had to start figuring out how to do research without access to libraries. So, a quick question. What were you trying to accomplish at the beginning? Oh, our goal, uh, really demystifying a lot of food. It's one of the things, uh, I'm sure you all experience this, sure. being people who are professionals. Since it's your profession and your craft, I'm very familiar with it. People haven't put in that time and really delved and let it take over as much of their life. A lot of it stays magic, and a lot mm-hmm. of it stays really mysterious, And I kind of like helping to illuminate that. It's actually one of the things I like about working here is getting to... A lot of people come into our dumpling class, and they're so intimidated by the concept of dumplings. They just get walked through it a couple times, and they're just having a great time with it. And it's really great to sort of take the mystery out of that. Right. And um, to sort of take regional focus. You'll notice the structure of the book is very ingredient-based. Apples are their own entry, and then it's the whole history of human interaction with apples. We start from where it lives in the natural world to its domestication... And then it's history, politically, economically, culturally since then. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of uh, why we took this less regional sort of focus on it. 
was to really let the history of each ingredient sort of speak for itself and symbolize itself. To sort of also give people uh, an opportunity to interact with that. You know, if you really like apples, you can jump right in. It's a great place to just find a lot of information that's going to be interesting to you already. Mm-hmm. Well, let's jump into that when we come yeah. back because um, I would imagine Linda Watts was happy to have somebody who was familiar with the kitchen. She, yeah. she being a professor, yeah. would do one side of that book and that you were able to help her through all the structural things when it comes to cooking and, and uh, how exactly. we use uh, ingredients and, and certainly how it affects... It is interesting how many people come into the classes here and just, you never know what's freaking somebody out. Yeah. A lot of times it's making pie dough. Oh, yeah. You know, just it's things that we just take for yeah, granted, take right? take for granted, yeah. yeah. So, all right, when we come back, a little bit more about what's inside the books uh, on food and world culture by Linda S. Watts and Kelty Clark Mahoney. Now the waitress sell eggs and sausages and side of toast. Coffee and a roll, hash browns are what easy. Chili in a bowl with burgers and fries. What kind of pie? It's a graveyard charade, it's a late shit masquerade. We're back in the hot stove kitchen. Tom Douglas. Terry Roger, the chef in the hat. Chef in the, chef in the hat. And uh, Kelty Clark Mahoney is here, uh, one of the chefs here at the hot stove, but is also co-author of a new book called Food and World Culture, the issues, impacts, and ingredients that uh, we find around the world and how they affect everything that we, yeah. do, that we do. So what are we going to – why would someone buy this? Um – the main thing is, what I really see as sort of the draw for it is, um, and it is sort of aimed towards a younger audience. Our uh-huh. ideal market is in sort of the middle to early college range. And what I really see as valuable in it is one of the hardest things in education is really making things feel applicable to people's own experience. You know, I can tell people about the effect of Alexander the Great on right. spreading Hellenism anywhere. That's going to be really meaningless to a lot of people. Yeah. If people really enjoy the aroma of saffron and you can explain to them how much of that cultural relationship is built on these sort of cultural underpinnings and those themes, I really feel that helps bring it into a visceral relationship with the person who's absorbing it. Right. You can even see, uh, you know, in the national holiday we celebrated yesterday, well, you know, the actual history may be different from our national legend about it. Right. We get together, and the idea is you're eating these similar foods that give you this connection in a visceral way to the past. And so that was kind of the goal of this book. That's why we included recipes with all of the entries. Um, some of those recipes are a little obscure. We do have one in there for how to cook a peacock. Uh-huh. I don't know how many people are going to go uh-huh. get a peacock and really roast it up uh, with all First those. of all, you'd have to find the peacock. It, well, you know, they don't hide so well. So that's like St. Michel. Go over to St. Sure. Michel. Yeah. That was, that's a, it's funny. That's the place I was going to say. Chateau St. Michel have some. Yep, yep. They wander around out in Winthrop in the Methow Valley, too. So if you're here's, lucky, you can find one. Here's what I love about your book is that it's laid out in a way that is so easy to, to get. Oh, good. And I think interesting. So, for example, saffron. You mentioned saffron. You have a whole did you know. like So, mm-hmm. so that kind of covers all the things that saffron was used for over the ages and how it morphed into an ingredient that now is often the most expensive spice in our kitchens, right? right. Mm-hmm. So that's super interesting. 
Then you go into the production and consumption, the cultural diffusion, like all the different areas where saffron yeah. became important, trade and economic factors, societal issues. Now that I had asked you jokingly earlier, what, what's in this book is going to get you banned in Texas and Kansas? But yeah, some, something like that. People don't want to be told sometimes mm-hmm. that there's a cultural mm-hmm. issue with oh, saffron. Or like you had mentioned, tell us the story about hunting. Oh, well, yeah, it's just uh, in, in, in uh, doing the research for this, we have a chapter on venison, which sort of is a catch-all term for all the wild meats. Mm-hmm. The recipes do focus on, you know, elk and deer because that's sort of what people are usually interacting with. But uh, it was interesting in trying to take that out of sort of, you know, a lot of our history books have a very Eurocentric sort of view so in being in intentionally looking beyond that to the rest of the history around venison and its cultivation and its place in food systems is really how universal it sort of is whenever a group of people come in charge of an area that they really... I mean, ass- the power, essentially, yeah, yeah. That they just assert the legal control over all of the hunting there and frequently uh-huh. all of the foraging as well. And that uh, it's, yeah, just uh, it's one of the first steps people do in consolidating. A and so that power. essentially cuts out the person who used to try to roam right. through the land. Exactly. And yeah. take an elk or take a deer for, for their own consumption. Exactly. Yeah. It really does solidify this dependence on the power structure. As right. It so that's super interesting. Then you go into the culinary uses, the industrial uses, the medicinal uses, the yeah. beverage uses, the impact, and... Uh, then a couple of recipes, and I think it's just so beautifully laid out in oh, that good. I would know now more about saffron than I ever needed to know. Yeah, uh, It is a common thing with saffron to go to India or to Morocco. When I was in Morocco, two, two pieces of saffron into your um, hot water uh-huh. and to make that into a drink, oh, like yeah? an effusion. It's a very common thing to do in India. I saw it in India and I saw it in Morocco. Mm-hmm. And that also uh, actually does go back to uh, Alexander the Great, which it is uh, one of the fun things in reading about this is how much he really was a marketing force for saffron, amongst other things. It was so sought after by he and his leaders, and they also, uh, it was widely believed that bathing in saffron or drinking saffron tea would heal battle wounds. And so that was also widely believed to be one of the reasons why his army was so successful. And it also helped lead a lot of the early interest in saffron and saffron farming because people were farming it thinking it was some sort of a defense mechanism uh-huh. mm. as much as a food. And so that's why uh, it was actually kind of when I was starting to research that chapter that I was just looking at starting, you know, first information, looking at everywhere where saffron is cultivated and where it's culturally significant. And it is exactly the map of the empire yeah. of Alexander the Great. And it is wow. just the lasting legacy of that expansion and cultural exchange. What, what ingredient did you come across that caused the most trouble? Oh, so, you know, there's fruit. things like... Uh, Bread food? Oh, yeah, man. So, I was thinking, in my mind, I was thinking black pepper or coffee or salt. Oh, oh see, so those are... Sugar. Those are great. There's a million things to say about them. They're fascinating. Yeah. Let me tell you, there's nothing more boring than breadfruit <laughs> in this whole world. The, um, we, we had to cover it because, it, or we chose to cover it because it, uh, its exchange and cultural diffusion is really tied to the expansion of colonialism and the triangle slave trade, particularly in the Caribbean um, I'm personally very fascinated, and I love the food of the Caribbean and the cultural history there. So it's something I wanted to bring into this book because it so frequently falls by the wayside. Uh-huh. And so, so breadfruit more, say, than sugarcane? Oh, yeah, because it's so boring. And then the hardest thing is when you get into a bunch of the early descriptions of breadfruit, it's all English sailors trying uh-huh. to describe breadfruit because also, unfortunately, I only speak English, so that's the language all of my research took place in. 
But uh, if you ever wanted to have an unreliable source for how something tastes, ask a bunch of English sailors in the 1500s. There is, like, you will see... They're known account. for their degustation. Oh, yeah. And, and you'll have two sailors on the same ship in their diaries eating breadfruit together, describing it entirely separately as an item. And there was so much of this we were, that we had to look into. Was there some other fruit that was called breadfruit for uh-huh. a long time? And there was not. There's just a lot of differing experience in how people interact with food. So what, what ingredient caused the most death? Oh, so that's most likely going to be uh, sugar. Sugar is uh, oh, yeah, sugar. definitely really terrifying. It was... Uh, just fights? It caused fights? Yeah. Well, wars. Uh, the, the wars over it, as well as its place in our diet and the destruction it does uh, on the human body and uh, how heavily consumed it is, as well as just its cultivation has driven so much conflict and that. Um, yeah, so that was a shocking one. Um, I would also... Th- the um, What's it? The banana, you know, the banana chapter, sadly, just due to the role of, you know, United Fruit in the mid-20th century and all that. That's a really dark chapter as well. But one of the things I really did enjoy in it is we focused on some of the more uplifting things and looking at the coming food system as our world's changing. And just as we need to sustain more people, as we need to do that in an environment that might have fewer places we can cultivate. There's a lot of very hopeful chapters in there. And, for instance, the future of sorghum, how versatile and wonderful that is an ingredient. Mm-hmm. Um, and the history of how foods have been developed before and how we're developing foods for the future now are really hopeful chapters in that, too, which can kind of um, outweigh what you learn about chocolate and things of that nature. That is, right. so, that is so much research and depth and sounds fascinating. It's like perfect fireplace, sitting by the fireplace kind of book to read for hours. Yeah, exactly. Because you can just read a short chapter about saffron, yeah. say, for yeah. what, five, six, seven pages and then move on. So yeah. you're done. Well, Kelty Clark Mahoney, congratulations to yeah, you. Yeah, congratulations. Thank you very much. Thank Beautiful you very much. Lots. The book is called Food and World Culture. I'm going to give this for some Christmas presents. We it's were talking about that earlier. Yeah, but it's they're volume one, volume two, because they go through the whole alphabet. Yeah. So it's actually just in two sections, two book sections. Which conveniently, and, if you line them up on the shelf, because the volumes are A-N and O-Z, it's an ounce as it sits oh. on the shelf, which is a helpful frame of reference. Helpful frame of mind. That is fantastic. Good job. All right. Thank you so much. Congratulations. Thank you. Coming up next, we have questions from our dear audience who are just falling over asleep right now after their turkey lunch. On Cairo, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Back in the town, call up the goons, bring the Honda around, my dude, give it some room, for a six foot producer with the real heavy appetite, I got a hankering, I'm trying to get my tummy right, with some rice noodles, in some beef broth, basil in the mint leaves, drown in the hoisin sauce, when you want it, not really much to say, we eat a big bowl and go smell like it all day, bean sprouts with a pinch of little lime, got me feeling kind of fresh, thinking about the next time, home at the crib, Stuffy head, sick with the cold. Take the chicken noodle soup can and throw it out, bro. You under the weather. Boo-boo. It's exciting to be back at the house. We have a lively group here today. The tryptophan has not quite set in yet, so we're thankful that you're all still awake. Uh, I'm Tom Douglas. And I'm Thierry Rotiro, the chef in the hat. And sitting in the production chair today, the producer chair, is Loretta Douglas, taking over for an ill Pam Hinckley. Always nice to be here. Always nice to be here. Sean's still on the technical side over there. 
So uh, this is our time to take some questions from this lovely audience, and you're going to send them at us rapid fire. We're going to burn through some of these. Yeah, we're going to burn through them. Uh, there's actually a question for me, so we're going to all, all three kind of go through them. We'll try and get through them as many as we can pretty quick. Uh, so let's go. All right. First question for your uh, Christmas slash holiday dinner. Do you go traditional or exotic? Do you switch it up? Same thing every year. What's the plan? No pre-plan on that. It's whatever's going to come up in the mind two weeks beforehand. If I'm making Christmas dinner, I don't, I don't make it traditional, no. We used to always do vegetable soup as a fitting end to the holidays, and then my nephews who came over for dinner really wanted prime rib. <laughs> so then we switched over to prime rib and Yorkshire pudding. Yeah. But I'm back to vegetable soup. All right, so same thing. We do Christmas Eve usually. We switch it up every year, and then Christmas Day tends to Finish stick it up. to the same. Yeah. And in my family, we also do Hanukkah, and it's the same every year. Lots of latkes. So this was a question for me. I'm going to put it to everybody. So do you make your pie crust with butter or shortening? And then do you cover your crust once it's filled to keep it from burning? What's your philosophy on both? Butter and yes. Butter and yes. Do you cover it the whole time? No, just when it's needed to be to stop coloring. Okay. It's, it's true for any baking, blind baking I do, or baking of, I do. It's if there is too much color on the, on the color of the, the pie or the tart. If, before the quiche center is done, Before you're the saying, center is yeah. done, I usually put a little piece of aluminum foil or uh, parchment paper, depends on what I can do, and I cover that. All you have to do when something is getting too much color, just cover the area that's colored. It will keep baking without coloring anymore. Same for you, same for me. What is your go-to Brussels sprout recipe? <laughs> Bonus points for less sugar. Less sugar? Sugar. Why would you want to put sugar in no. Brussels sprouts? Well, a lot sprout? of people make their Brussels sprouts with some brown sugar or a little maple they syrup. Do? Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> we better I move on so we don't insult anybody. I guess mine are going to get delicious then. I love shaving them on a mandolin and just giving a, a two-minute stir-fry. Lots of hot chilies and garlic. I like to cut them in quarters. And then just pan fried in a beautiful, uh, nice hot pan. And then finish with the uh, hot chili crisp. Simple, very simple, and it's really delicious. What is the biggest difference in your restaurant or food service since reopening post-COVID? That's a big question. The but big if difference you had for to... me is they're closed. <laughs> <laughs> no, the big difference when we reopened was to go. To go. We had to redo our restaurant into a fashion of... To go, which before it was 0.1% of our business, it had to become 100% of our business. That was very difficult, especially because we were not making dishes that were necessarily always ready to go. So that was the biggest challenge we were faced with. And also to find a customer base, because I wasn't convinced that the people who were coming in my restaurant every day for dinner sitting at a table were going to come with their car and pick up a box of food. I wasn't convinced there was another, because it's a completely different type of thoughts and business. The only good safety is everybody was at the same level. You couldn't go into a restaurant, so that was the only good thing. Uh, biggest thing for me is our hours have changed dramatically, right? We've had to shorten our hours because there's just not enough people to work anymore. And, to, and there's uh, the expense of staying open on days when you really shouldn't be open. I'll, we always just kind of ate as the cost of doing business, but now it's, I'm much more free about just saying, okay, we're closed Mondays and Tuesdays. Or, and our new restaurant, uh, 
at his big mountain barbecue is closed Tuesdays and Wednesdays, right? So it's yeah. like, it's whatever. It's what you do what you have to do. Right. For me, I think as somebody that's in a leadership position in the company, it's the number of employees that we have. We went from 850 all the way down to 12. Now we're at about 275. And at 275, I recognize almost everyone still at this point that works for the company. And that has, I love that. Mm-hmm. I, um, at 850, there was a, 500 people that I didn't ever know. So I really like, I've enjoyed yeah. knowing people more, I think, in the company. How many jobs have you done in our company over the Almost years? all of them. I know you've been a cook at Palace. I you've was a catering. catering cook. I cooked at Palace for a bit. I've been a catering server. I've been a host at almost every one of the restaurants. Uh-huh. I worked in the marketing department. And you're our legal counsel now? I'm legal now? Count- well, I was legal counsel before I'm still legal counsel, and then now I'm managing director too. So there you go. It's been a many many and pretty jobs. soon to be pretty soon to be the CEO, I guess. <laughs> yeah. This is an interesting question. What kind of sacrifices do you have to make when working in a high volume kitchen when it comes to food quality and menu diversity? We're seeing that a lot post COVID. I think right, like right. how we can optimize for. Well, I think the biggest sacrifice is size of the menu. Correct. Uh, there's a huge one, and that's probably a good thing because uh, you turn food over faster. You sell more of the same thing and turn it over faster. So I would say you just have to be on your game. Keep training every day. Every day you can't take anything for granted. So that's it's not a sacrifice. That's just the way, the way it is. I think using the KISS rule, we use that word KISS rule, which is keep it simple, stupid, uh, kind of rule. I think that rule has definitely resurfaced more than ever. And what it means is try to be very smart about less ingredients, less inventory, uh, mainly because you have less people working. I mean, you, you can't have, if you don't have eyes on the ball on the entire program, why have a program so big? Make the program smaller so you yeah. can keep a hold of it. And that's, I think those answers are how you get around sacrificing quality. Mm-hmm. Is right. Yeah, because the, the idea of sacrificing the quality is not true. It's just less of it, so it's actually more focused. And just, you know, just, just like all those new restaurants you've seen open in the last five years, you'd go there and you'd see 10 items on the menu and be like, wow, that's a small menu. And you're like, no, that's a smart menu. Fantastic, yeah. yeah. Fantastic. And yeah. if you have 10 perfect items, exactly. you're so much better off than yeah. 25 mediocre ones. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I always get a little nervous when I'm in places with gigantic menus because I just feel like, how can they be? When there is like five pages getting of menu, through this, like, yeah. How do one you of the that? first uh, one of the first restaurants I worked at when I moved to Washington in '77 was Boondock Sundeckers and Green Thumbs on Broadway, and it had a 50-page menu. It's like that when you go to the not that I've been recently, the Cheesecake Factory. It's like oh, a binder. There you go, it's binder. <laughs> but you have been. <laughs> But it was like, you know, there's ads in it. When you're running a restaurant, how do you know how much food to order and how accurate can you be in ordering? Well, the accuracy comes with the number of people who are going to pass the front door if you, if you bet correctly. If you think you're going to have 50 people coming, let's say every night, you buy for 50. And if it's, if it's only 35, then you have to figure out what to do with the other 15 people food. And you've well, ordered. I think the, the point, Chef, is you don't know if those 50 people are all going to order the burger or if they're going to order soup, but after a few months of doing it, you know how many burgers right. you're going to sell right. in a nighttime Got on it. average. Right. Is it just a cost you build into opening in that way of like not quite knowing what your mix is going to be? 
of yeah, maybe I mean, having more product. It's than built in, but there is. You it's know, organized chaos. You okay. you learn really quickly. What but I can tell you, there is very little waste. I mean, I, I don't I don't believe in waste in my kitchen. It's like you know, it's like you definitely get very smart and very quickly you get a hold of what's going on. You know, and you figure out how to use everything when it's at its best. All right, last one is just for Tom. What's your handicap and what's your favorite golf course in Washington? My handicap is. Uh, Having my daughter as legal counsel, because <laughs> I, I can't get away with anything. That is a problem. Uh, I am a uh, 13. And what was the last part What's of the What's your part? favorite course in Washington? Oh, in Washington. Well, I play at Broadmoor out there in the uh, Arboretum. So I'll say that's my favorite. I don't play much outside of that. I belong to a course in Scotland called Loch Lomond Golf Club. It's something else. Okay. All right. Thank you for your questions, audience. Right. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, uh, stay with us for our last segment. It's Rub with Love, Food for Thought, Tasty Trivia. On Cairo Radio, it's right. the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. What do you do with toss salads and scrambled eggs? A world full of circles and those square pegs. The blues is always calling toss salads and scrambled eggs. Here we go. It's time for Food for Thought Tasty Trivia, brought to you by Rub with Love Spice Rubs, my very own line of spices sold throughout the country and throughout the world. I also have sauces and mustards. Uh, We think you need a big assortment of them in your pantry, especially over the holiday season, because it makes life easy. You know, you saw today, Chef, when I made my gravy, I used my mushroom mushroom rub as a gravy helper. It's perfect for that. Uh, look for them at your local grocery stores like PCC, Whole Foods, Met Markets, up north at the uh, Town and Countries, locations, uh, the markets uh, in Anacortes and Birch Bay, or east at Yokes. I, I just went to Yokes in the Tri-City the other day. It's a nice little grocery store. They have 19 locations in eastern Washington, Idaho. Of course, many, many more. 5,000 retail locations around the country. Producer Loretta, will you tell us how to play the game and... Uh, who we're playing for? Who's going to be our winner today? All right. So the game is five trivia questions per contestant. We have the three of you up here as contestants. Today's trivia was written by our very own Rub with Love manager, Carol Bausch. So ro- she does great. She listens to be. our show every yeah. week. So. Extra yeah, yeah. spicy. Yeah. Good. And uh, yeah. Who's our contestant? I don't know who's going to be our contestant today. Andrew oh, Monaghan. our third contestant. Is, <laughs> I thought you said, who are we playing for? I just uh, said that also. Our third contestant today is Eamon Monahan. He is brand new chef at the Hot Stove Society, and we are putting him right on the spot here Welcome. today. Welcome. He did not know he was going to be asked to do this <laughs> up until a couple of minutes ago. So, Well, I, I don't know anything that's going to happen here until a couple of minutes. Oh, really? <laughs> so it fits right in. Well, here's what you should know is that we are always looking for our next victim, Eamon, and that's just just the way it is. It's the best and out of five. And unfortunately, uh, we don't often find them. Yeah. Usually they crush us. We get crushed every time. Yeah. Are you ready? What are we playing for today? We're playing for a three-pack of Rub With Love. There's the Harvest Trio over there. I would suggest taking a mushroom with you today at some point uh, our, in our gift shop. Our gift shop is just stocked full of... Great. We have little red boxes. You can make your own three-packs. And Perfect. who's going to be the... the, the Recipient of that. The the winner today is going to be the gentleman in the audience that was forced here by his significant yes. other. <laughs> the last time you'll 
He'll slander us. <laughs> yeah, no. Next time he's going to come with 17 people. Yeah. He did say he enjoyed his time, even though he was brought here against his will. So, all right, let's play. All right, I start. Terry first. Go ahead. In the 1982 movie E.T., The Extraterrestrial, what candy did they l- use to lure E.T. out of hiding? It has to be a Mars bar. He was from somewhere else. <laughs> That's pretty funny, actually. But, but it's, I mean, what it's pretty you, wrong. The guy's extraterrestrial. What do you give him? A Mars bar. Yeah. It's going to look just like home. <laughs> oh. It was not, in fact, a Mars bar. It was Reese's Pieces. Oh, wow. I would have got it wrong. I would have said M&M's. You Reese's would have been a little pieces. closer. Yeah. All right. Number two. What is nougat? Almond, uh, almond and sugar. Basically, that's what it is. An egg white. Correct. Nougat is a fluffy, aerated confection made of sugar or honey and egg whites. Okay, number three. When making candy at home, what temperature is the hardball stage? 185. I'm going to guess that one out of my hat. No, it's probably higher. 250 to 266. Yeah, of course. You were close, Chef. Just um, 100 (laughs) degrees I was halfway there. (laughs) I was halfway there, not awake. Okay, can number four, cotton candy made its premiere at the 1908 World's Fair in Tennessee. Yes. Was it created by A, a restaurant owner, B, a dentist, C, a blacksmith, or D, a country singer? The blacksmith. That's incorrect. It was created by a dentist. Okay, that was the other nice <laughs> option. He was looking to increase his patience. Dentist cool. William Morrison. I think the, the iron guy would have been more fun. All right. All right, number five. In the movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, what is an Oompa Loompa? I'm going to say it's a chocolate bar. They look a little bit like you right now. <laughs> <laughs> a sad little... Uh, a sad little a sad man. sad little chocolate... Uh, <laughs> I don't know. They're uh, the uh, factory workers in the oh. Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. All right, you are uh, one for five today. One for five. I'm brilliant. <laughs> Nice try, Chef. Really, thank you for the applause. That's really not necessary. <laughs> There's going to be better to applaud. Okay, Amen. We're See, going I to told you, we're going to crush you. Question number one: What does it mean to temper chocolate? To temper chocolate would be to bring it up to a certain temperature, and then to add what's called seed chocolate uh, that's in solid form. Okay, okay. Can we have somebody else play this game? <laughs> Seed chocolate. I know he's right. Dang it. Actually, the right answer is to bring it up to temperature and then down to temperature so you can actually bring it up so it doesn't separate. Uh, He knew what he was talking about. He knew exactly what he's doing. (laughs) Question two. Is there milk in chocolate? Is there milk in milk chocolate? Yes. Correct. <laughs> I like the I like how smart he is. Yes. In it's order to be considered milk chocolate, the candy must contain twelve percent or more milk. Number three, what is white chocolate? Uh, that would be just uh, cocoa uh, butter without the addition of any cocoa solids. Correct. Wow, he's killing you, Terry. <laughs> uh, number four, what are the typical ingredients of a marshmallow? That's going to be gelatin and uh, candied sugar. Egg white? And uh, egg white. This says no egg, no, white. No egg white. There's no egg white. This says you, sugar, You should corn answer your questions as opposed to mine. <laughs> corn, syrup, corn syrup was probably the one missing thing there. 0.5. Oh. Wow. You can't lose. I like okay, that. Okay, number 
five. Last question. True or false? The candy cane was invented in 1670 to keep children quiet. False. That's true. Legend has it that the candy cane dates back to 1670 when the choir master at a cathedral handed out sugar sticks among his young singers to keep them quiet. There you go. Wow. Still, All right, we are at one, three two, point, three point five, five out of out of five. five. Here. You beat my one by a lot, <laughs> but that All was right. expected. Father dearest. All right, yeah. Tom. Let's Father do it. Dearest. Question one: What is the best-selling candy in the USA? Reese's bar, a Reese's cup. That's true. Wow, who knew? <laughs> Number two: True or false? Pralines were created in New Orleans in 1922. Uh, I'm going to say true. It is false. You were uh, on the right track. Yeah. Believe that pralines were brought over from France by the Ursuline nuns who came to New Orleans in 1727. Those damn nuns. You know, I grew up for 12 years with those nuns, and they never gave me a praline. <laughs> they mostly just smacked me upside the head. You know what the other term, the slang term for praline in France is when I punch you, I send you a praline. Oh, really? <laughs> no joke. Okay. Question three. How much candy does the average American consume in a year? Is it A, two pounds, B, Five pounds, C eight pounds, or D ten pounds. Does that does that include, include Fran's uh, gold bars? <laughs> For you, yes. It does that? It's eight pounds. That's correct. Yeah. Oh my god. Eight pounds of candy with children eating even. You don't more. get a body like mine without eating a bit of candy. <laughs> Question four: True or false? Bubble gum was a mistake invention. Definitely a mistake. Yeah, that is true. Uh, Walter Dimer in 1928 was uh, discovered bubblegum by accident while experimenting in the lab during his breaks. Okay, last question. This is uh, for the win here, if you get it. Pressure. So in the 1994 movie Forrest Gump, how did Forrest describe life? Like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. There you go. Okay, winner, winner. That's why he always took a bite out of each chocolate. But I do believe his mother described it that way to him. Is that true? Talk to Carol. Schooling the attorney over here. Talk to Carol. She wrote the questions. (laughs) Thank you, Carol Bausch. That was awesome, uh, Tom. The rub director. Thank you, Edmund, for being a good sport. Thank you so much. If you want to be part of the show, you can join the community on YouTube Live at Tom Douglas & Co. on Thursday mornings from 9 to 11. Or buy a ticket to join us in the studio here at HotStoveSociety.com. You're listening to us on Cairo. The show is produced by Loretta today, instead of Miss Inkley. Uh, Sean McFadden is our technical wizard, and our editor is Sean Don't Call Me Del Torre. Remember, if you miss any episode of our Hot Stove Society show on Cairo, you can listen via podcast. Just subscribe with your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening, and have a fabulous weekend. Woo! Fabulous! There we go.